Hi, I'm Dan Kursky, and tonight we're looking at issue 8 of Green Lantern Mosaic, the Jon Stewart solo series from the early 90s. And today we're going to do things a little differently. We're going to start off with the letters page for a reason that'll become clear later. Um, Alright, so diving right into it. People are really starting to come around on this book. You know, they're, like, <laughs> in the first... The, fir the very first letters page was people trying to figure out how soon it would get cancelled, but now everybody seems to pretty much like it. You know, it, um, uh, Rand B. Lee of Santa Fe, New Mexico says that, uh, Green Lantern Mosaic is phenomenally good, the best of the Green Lantern books, and possibly the most mature thing DC has produced in years. For me, Jon Stewart is the first really believable African-American character in comics, and one of the few really believable men in comics. And Gerard Jones replies back to him, saying that, I surely have no intention of letting this series go anytime soon. In fact, in a couple of issues, we're beginning a story arc that will take us through our second year, through some great revelations about Chip and Kat Matui and John himself, culminating in issue 25. And that will only be the end of the introductory phase in Air Bunnies of Mosaic. Will we last that long? Early sales reports are very encouraging, and my dear Mr. Dooley is behind me passionately, so let's hold our breaths and plunge on. Now that raised an eyebrow because, as you may or may not know, this series only makes it to issue 18. So right away, I'm... It, I was never quite sure at what point they found out they were cancelled, but this makes me wonder what ended up not making it, you know? I, and it's a very, very presumptuous open-ended question because I don't even know where this series ends up going and ending. So for all I know, uh, Gerard Jones might have been able to work everything he wanted into the smaller space of 18 issues. It is interesting, though, that even if he can do, in 18 issues, what he was going to do with 25 issues, that's still just the beginning of where he wanted to go and what he wanted to do. So this is, oh, now I'm now I'm very, oh god, wow, that kind of, that kind of changes the way I'm looking at this book from here on in. Not necessarily as a negative though. It's just interesting. It adds a new layer to the story you're reading, kind of without being part of the story itself necessarily. Oh, whatever, whatever, keep moving, moving on. <laughs> um, another letter writer praises Jar Jones for taking Jon Stewart, a prominent African-American character, and making him the central figure of a, of a larger-than-life cosmic series. You know, he, he ranks Jon up there with, with the likes of Storm and Captain Marvel, or Photon, from... Uh, from Marvel Comics. And yet another writer, and this is why I think this letters page is kind of a better 
intro to the issue than an outro. He says, in all caps, which, you know, that helps your point, a black man who has grown up under pressures such as John has will not be able to settle for anything less than black companionship. Jungle fever was fiction. And he's, of course, speaking of the relationship between John and Rose, uh, which he actually, he's quoted as calling her a clueless trollop and cave tramp, which it's it's kind of interesting because up to this point, the subject of race hasn't really asserted itself in this book yet. And I mean, just given the premise of the series and the fact that the lead character is an African-American male, you would almost think they would go there for one reason or another, whether it was story-driven or not, whether Gerard Jones wanted to or not. But it really hasn't been about that. And this issue right here, actually, issue 8, that's where we start to see some of it. This time it's all about cultural identity. This race of lanky gray aliens that John calls trendoids in Air Bunnies, uh, they do everything possible to mimic the dress and culture and behavior of whoever's nearest to them. It, it doesn't matter what the action is, they'll copy it if they think it'll make the imitation complete. So once Mexican gangbangers get pissed off and start shooting, the trendoids come back with guns of their own and, and they do their best to fit in. Um, you know, someone tracks down Frankie, the... You could call him the kind of lead character amongst the Mosaic kids, because they've all been seen using their rings. Not by their parents, that they, they still haven't had their book cover blown. And the humans being shot up by the Trendoids want Frankie to call in John. So instead, Frankie rallies the other Mosaic kids so they can handle it themselves, which is an excellent plan. Um... It actually almost works, except now the Trendoids are all of a sudden <laughs> aping Frankie's culture instead. You know, I, I want to pause for a second here and just say the Mosaic kids are starting to assert themselves more as fleshed-out characters this time around. They only get a, a couple pages, but still, it's there. You know, um, We narrow down their ages a little bit more this time, as the youngest among them, Samosa, is... He's only eight years old, which... Picture an eight-year-old with a power ring, seriously. And there's a reference to at least one of them having finished the eighth grade, so... I th I'm gonna stick with my idea that Frankie, Kelly, and Jacqueline are in the, the 10 to 13 range. Um, it's funny, Frankie really wants to be taken seriously as an independent person, but the few adults who know he has a power ring don't look at him any differently or or dismiss him any less than any other kid. And he's is just a kid, for all his big talk. I mean, he pulls his friends together because he's afraid. He doesn't want to go see a Trendoids alone, despite wanting to be like John. Speaking of wanting to be like John, though, he frankly even breaks the fourth wall and starts talking to us in the middle of a conversation with another character. It's kind of, it's kind of funny. So this whole situation is making bursts of violence and hatred just break out all over the mosaic, right? And instead of frantically making himself crazy, flying all over the place, putting out fires, John decides instead to just cut to the heart of the matter and figure out why the Trendoids are doing what they're doing. And I mean, it turns out their world was conquered over and over and over and over again, millennia after millennia. And to survive, every generation of their people had to find ways to make themselves either useful or likable. 
to, basically to whoever happened to be conquering them that year. So to this day, they're they're ingrained with this intense fear that if they don't make themselves as much like those around them, they'll be killed, even for a tiny mistake. I mean, it's to the point that you can't ask them a question without a group of them frantically trying to figure out the best way to answer it based on the look and mood and tone of who's asking. <laughs> and all the while, they're still really eager to please. Um, John doesn't know what to do. You know, he'd like to give them back their own culture, but he doesn't have a clue what that is, and neither do they, really. After a conversation with Rose, John realizes that all he'd be doing is the exact thing the Trendoids have been doing already, you know, changing them to better suit who they're around. You know, I mean, that's the, when you get right down to it, that's the nuts and bolts of getting them to stop so as to not upset the rest of the mosaic. It's, it's, it wouldn't be helping them at all. So instead, he decides to try and make the rest of the mosaic accept the Trendoids for what they are, which is actually kind of an odd thought considering the Trendoids themselves lack an individual identity, either as a culture or as individuals themselves. But um, So he, he pops from town to town, species to species, pitching each of them the benefits of having a Trendoid or two, just following them around doing stuff. And the, the promise of what kind of technologies and techniques these aliens could bring to the table and whatever you're working on or whatever you're interested, that, that sort of thing. And for the most part, it works. You know, even the Trendoids think it's a good idea, although, to be fair, they are kind of eager to please. <laughs> um, and as I said before, this really does touch on and bring in themes of racism, which hasn't really been prominently present in this book very much. I mean, the citizen reaction to the Trendoids, and the reaction to the reactions, and the reaction to John's reactions, and lack of his reactions, and I mean, people just, they just go, they just run with it. You know, you've, you've got white people implying that John's less than human because of the color of his skin. You've got black people who hate John for not using his power to, to be a champion against white people. One, one old guy with a face positively filled with hate. <laughs> Jeez. He calls the mosaic, and I quote, not air bunnies, this doesn't get air bunnies, this is quotes, integrationism gone crazy. Someone even says the line, stop this, can't humankind finally come together now by uniting against the aliens? Which, now, in any other sci-fi context, like a movie or story or whatever, this is usually the ideal that turns things around for the better, and maybe even progresses human civilization further in the right direction. Except here, it's something that can only lead to the extermination of someone who doesn't deserve it. You know, I, again, all playing up the theme of cultural identity. But at the same time, in a nice bit of contrast to all that, we get a scene of John and Rose, a black man and a white woman, sitting in a kitchen together, having a civilized conversation about the problem. That house really is a microcosm of what John wants to build on the mosaic. There's an interesting bit here where John explains that along the way he's been making up playful names for all these new alien races like Trendoids, Tone Men, Feel Goods, because all the translator devices they've got can only process their actual names as the word people. Which, if you think too hard about it, doesn't fit at all with what John's ring should be capable of, but I don't really care about that, because it goes to the underlying theme that we're not all that different, we're all just people. 
Rose even brings that point out some when she when she points out that we all have these words to differentiate between us and section us off from each other and really we don't even know or think about what those words even mean why do we call africa africa why do we call an apple apple after a while the name stops being symbolic and just becomes a word associated with a specific person or thing it it doesn't have to hold power if enough of us don't want it to probably a dramatic oversimplification but no that's how i feel and it's worthy of mentioning here that there's three panels on the bottom of page 15 that deal with the super below the surface theme of John's internal struggle for his own identity. How, in a way, he can feel like like he may have abandoned who he is to be what he is. Is he a true black man? Is he a Green Lantern? What kind of Green Lantern? Does any of it even matter? We're going to end today on a somber note. Because as I record this, it's just come out today that Dwayne McDuffie has died. He... Well, it's actually, it's just one of those things that I just, I just happened to get to this issue when, when I did, because it's, it's almost appropriate to talk about him now, because he, this man did a lot to try and help the perception and the use of African American and minority characters in comic books. You know, he was one of the, the main architects of Milestone Comics, which tried to do just that. He was the creator of the character Static, who began life as a character in Milestone Comics and and would really reach popularity when, when getting his own Saturday morning cartoon show, Static Shock, which would run for, I want to say, three or four seasons, possibly more, possibly more. And I just saw in the latest solicitations is coming back into the DC universe proper and is getting his own ongoing series. You know, even though the man is lost to us, one of his best creations is going to continue on and once again get even more mainstream exposure than he ever did in Milestone. But it doesn't stop there either. McDuffie it's he's done a lot of work writing for animation too, you know. If you if you've watched the Justice League Crisis on Two Earths direct to DVD movie that came out from DC last year, I believe it was. That's that was like he wrote that. That was him, and that was one of my favorite ones they've done so far. Likewise, All Star Superman, not the comic, obviously that was Morrison, but the DVD adaptation that was him. Now he and that just came out within this past week, I believe. But I think most notably on the animation side was his extensive contributions to the Justice League Unlimited cartoon. There are so many people I've met and talked to that that got into Green Lantern, hell, got into comics through that cartoon. You know, that is this generation's super friends. And Dwayne McDuffie was one of the people steering the ship. I know these days it's easy to hear Dwayne McDuffie's name and think of his work on Justice League of America, the comic series, uh, before James Robinson took it over, which, you know, nobody could touch that series and make it gold. Not not in the last several years. But you gotta give him credit. He got on that book, the book that should be DC's comics flagship title, 
and he continued to do what he does best. He continued to pursue the goals that led him to Milestone. Well, by using first his experiences writing the big ensemble cast of the Justice League on the cartoon to help really play with that group dynamic and eventually bring in some of the Milestone characters for a story arc to put the spotlight on those guys again with readers who may have never heard of them before and to eventually make characters like Vixen, uh, the Jason Rush Firestorm, John Stewart, three very prominent, very powerful black characters who don't get a lot of play and put them center stage in this book, in Justice League of America. The book that, I mean, let's face it, the last couple of years have shown us that no matter what, this thing is going to sell. And that is, that's, that's not something a lot of people do. And he, and he was able to do it so well. I mean, Jon Stewart and Vixen, as Justice League Unlimited got into its final few seasons, those two characters and their relationship and their dynamic... Everybody knows about that now. That was the most high-profile thing to ever happen to those two characters in their entire history. Nothing in comics has ever done as much for their public visibility as that running subplot on that cartoon. And so, and what does he do when he gets the chance to bring characters into the comics? He brings those two in. Puts them on a team together. Because everybody who saw that cartoon knows these two characters, has an idea in their head that they should be around each other. It's it's become familiar. It's, some, it's given somebody a starting point with those two characters. So they can start there and go forward. And at, at this point I'm rambling. He did a lot of good. He took something that can be silly, like writing comic books and writing cartoon shows and he did something with it that that's important and in both of those mediums now there's work that he's done that that 20, 30, 50 years from now people are going to be able to crack open, take in, and it'll have the same impact on them as it did the day that it first came out. So for what it's worth, the man has left a good legacy. So, I'm going to ask that all of you join me in giving him a moment of silence. Silence. 